This is the Goodwin Podcast, and I'm Nico, your host. And I'm a little disappointed in myself for not valuing baths um, sooner. I feel like I'm I'm just now appreciating baths and bathtubs, and I do wonder why it's taken me so long. I used to feel like I didn't have time, you know, for showers. I couldn't be bothered for bathing. Um, but it's the best part of my day now. Getting in the water. Uh, when it's when it's done, I'm sad that I've already done it. And I, I guess all things in time, right? can't force it but love baths so much no better way to like warm up in the in the fresh cold of a midwest winter than a warm bath and it is better late than never If, uh, if you don't like baths or don't feel like you can be bothered to shower, I, I, I ask you to reconsider. Being able to have running water, um, you know, it's just not, it's not guaranteed even in the world we live in now. It's hard pressed to find um non running water maybe in the united states uh and but i've traveled you know i've seen i've i've been to some places uh witnessed witnessed some deep poverty um where the running water isn't so available Tourism, what's it called? Tourist, touristic poverty, tourism, poverty-based tourism. Um, and I didn't know what I was getting myself into when I was going to these places. I think the deepest amount of poverty I've seen was in Indonesia. It was a next next level there very eye-opening. I was 19 or 20 years old. Yeah, it was just like <sighs> children on the streets, like laying, sleeping in alleys. Some of them would be trying to sell you bracelets or little knickknacks. And saying no is almost impossible. And I ended up leaving Indonesia with 40 different bracelets just because I couldn't say no to these kids on the street. And some of them were persistent. I was with a group of guys and and a kid, he, he, he saw my friend Mike and he, and he tried to sell him a bracelet. And this is, this is on Mike because instead of saying no, because that's what you also have to learn, people 
they see your tourist, they, they go for the, se- the sell, they go for the kill. I mean, I, I remember being in, uh, in the Virgin Islands one time and landing there and, uh, and I was walking down the street and, and a lady had braided my hair without me even knowing and charged me $20. This is back when I had long hair. I was just walking down the street, looking looking at different hand carved dolphins and and penises and and spoons and and the next thing I know, this this lady is she puts her baby in my arm and uh, asks for twenty dollars. I said, "For what?" She said, "Your hair's braided." I had I had cornrows. I had cornrows without even knowing. She must have done it in, in 20 seconds, giving me a full head of cornrows. And I look at the baby and I, you know, so I had to pay her. I had to pay the lady. I was just educated on, uh, on cornrows, the hair and, and the hair, the history of the hair of, uh, African um, descendants of enslaved people, and there was there was three things that just like I wouldn't have even considered to know. And uh, having been educated, it's like whoa. But apparently, according to this this source, which the source was. Uh, a black woman I follow on Instagram. She posted this. They used to, there used to be communication built into cornrows. How people braided their hair, how the enslaved people braided their hair, would show routes, escape routes, would be mapped out in their hair. There would be maps built into people's heads. Um which is crazy. Another thing is, is if, uh, if they had to travel, they would used to sow in rice and seeds into the hair for either eating or, or I guess planting to grow food. So it was like a little, is a, is a travel pouch built into your head. And those are the kind of cool ones. There's also like pretty, uncomfortable quotes like there was a pencil test there used to be a pencil test where this must be Jim Crow post-slavery but pre-freedom or I mean maybe we can still argue there's still a lack of freedom Um, but lack of explicit freedom not the implicit quiet racism the more explicit racism times where they would, if a pencil, if you can put a pencil in your hair and it would stay and not fall out, your hair was, then you would not be allowed into a place, an establishment. Discrimination based on the hair was the tell if you had African lineage. Uh, 
or you had to have it covered in a certain way. So, so people sell, they sell hard down there. You go to the islands, they see your, some places they see your tourist. I mean, you'll end up having adopted four kittens and, and buy seven pairs of, of size three shoes without even knowing it. You just be walking on the street and the next thing you know, you're, you're, Arm, arms are full of, of, um, of, you know, knit clothing, hand, hand woven clothing and, uh, and, um, and bowls. And you'll look in your wallet has $3 less than it, than it did before. And I get it. I mean, It's, you got to do what you got to do. You got to, you got to make the sale. You got to be pushy. So we were in Indonesia and this kid, you know, Mike didn't say, give him a clear no. Cause you, you have to give him the clear, clear no in Indonesia, at least where there is a level of aggression in sales that I hadn't witnessed before, but there was also a level of poverty I haven't witnessed before. Mike didn't give the kid a clear no. The kid ended up following our us specifically Mike for a mile or two waiting for Mike to give him the the money to buy the bracelet eventually Mike does make it clear but it's too late the kid has already followed us for a mile so the kid went up and just punched Mike straight in the stomach and we left Mike, I don't think he left, but but we did. And so I lived in in uh, Australia, Southeast Asia, for some time, but I did spend a year in South America. I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Pretty pivotal, pivotal moments of my life. How, how I ended up going there was I decided to post college before accepting the burden of, of adulthood and getting a job, which I, I got a degree in chemistry. So the next track was to go work in a lab or go to graduate school, neither of which I wanted to do. So I got certified to teach English as a second language and I knew I wanted to go to South America. Why? A few reasons, but, you know, the women are beautiful. I know that's a, a romantic, a, fetish, a fetishization of a culture, but I'm sorry. But I'm also sorry for that. And I also find Latina women so beautiful based on programming or the fetishization of a culture. I'm not sure, but that, that is one of the reasons. Next reason was curiosity. I had friends who had traveled to South America before, 
I had a girl I, I was crushing on hard in college. Um, and, and right as we were starting to go out, she, she ended up going to South America for six months or whatever. That could have had something to do with it. So it was on my radar. And, um, they don't pay the best as to English teachers. If you want to get paid, uh, you go to Korea or, uh, or, uh, the Middle East. But I wanted to go there. So I got this certification and put out an application. I ended up getting picked up by this school in Argentina, specifically Mar de Plata, where I was to live with a host family and work as a teacher teaching English for an eight-month contract, I believe. And I didn't speak Spanish. No hablé español. Uh, when I went to Argentina, I thought I'd been to Italy before. I'd been to Australia. I'd been to Thailand, Indonesia, and I've gotten by with my English somehow, some way. And I had the ignorance that I would be able to do the same in Argentina. And if I was in Buenos Aires, Buenos Aires, I probably could have gotten by. But I wasn't. I was in a, a smaller city. It's still a city south of Buenos Aires. Um, and when I got there, my host family didn't speak any English. Any. And a learning opportunity, we'll call it. But I, I ended up bringing like two huge duffel bags and a backpack down there. And that was a bane of my existence. If you are traveling... Less is more. I, I I want you to understand that it you want to stay light and mobile. And uh, and maybe it's it's a great time to practice minimalism and and your hand washing skills of clothes. So I get there. Host family doesn't speak any English. I go to explore the city, the surrounding city, and I'm finding. No one speaks English. The gas station where I had to get a bus pass. This was my first, like, this was the first moment I realized, oh, I'm fucked. Trying to get a bus pass from the gas station employee attendant and not being able to communicate that. And him, him it was literally like pulling out cigarettes. Eh? No, la, lataria, uh, no, no gracias. Lighter, candy bar, used sock, mustache comb, and eventually I end up getting a bus pass. And I had never really explored public transportation. The college I went to was University of Iowa. Everything is pretty much, it's a bubble, or everything was in pretty much a square mile. So the buses were very easy, and even if you messed up on a bus, uh, you could walk to where you needed to go. But I spent hours taking the wrong buses all the way across town, not knowing how to communicate where I was going, getting straight up lost, 
so many times and not being able to communicate how to get back. It was, I was thrown into the deep end without floaties. The only people that did speak English were the people that hired me um, for that, for the English specific school and some of my older students. But for, it took me about three months to be able to not even understand. I, I found that I could speak. I, I found after three months I could really speak what I was trying to, to say. And I could understand 30% of the time. Or I could understand some words and then piece together a response. But so much time just not communicating with people. And that's when I really, really started to learn about the difference between loneliness and being alone. And there was a fair bit of both. I think I wrote a bunch of dark poetry. That's when I really went in on like TED Talks and I guess podcasts back then, but they were more like um, lectures. I remember getting really into, uh, what's it called? How sound shapes the structure of water, the structuring of water and the evidence of that. How you can put like, um, which is, this doesn't have to do with water, but you can put like a thin layer of sand on a speaker, put a certain frequency through, and then the, the sand would arrange itself into a, a visible pattern. And I remember that meaning something to me. And also my, host mother she had one book in english and it was eckhart tolls a new earth and i remember devouring that book and it, it mean it being so impactful for me it was all about the first half of the book is what is ego and learning how to identify the ego and <sighs> my any 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 separation any possession, form of possession, how tricky the ego can be, um, and the purpose of perseverance. And then there was the second half of the book is kind of like strategies and ways to live. And that's that maybe do a whole book review on that. That book sometimes is very impactful for me. But spending just so much time alone, not talking and, and, People would talk to me. I'd have no idea what they're saying. And I just the blank stare or if I didn't want to seem too embarrassing, like the smile and the nod. Oh, see, see. I had no idea what I was agreeing to. And for about three months, I couldn't communicate. At around month five, I started to be able to understand maybe 60% of stuff. And um, things got a little bit better. But it was a struggle, super struggle, not being able to communicate with anyone that I was around. But in hindsight, it did teach me Spanish pretty, pretty decently. I can go to a Spanish speaking country and make my way around town. And I can even have some philosophical in-depth conversations at this point on good days when the Spanish is flowing. But it was a 
Struck i... Já. So I taught English and most of my contract was basically me being a traveling teacher to going to all the different classes and I basically put together no structure at all. They're like, go to the classes and talk English. Okay. So I ended up putting together basically this, this show where I found a few funny YouTube videos. Um, I made a PowerPoint about, you know, basic stuff, who I am, who's my family, where I'm from, what I like to do. And I basically had this like little show. I would go, I'd plug in the PowerPoint. I'd have it like it memorized my lines. And, and then some, there were some jokes in there. There were some serious moments, left time for Q&A. And I would go in front of these Argentinian kids and two two adults and uh, and put on this this little show. And then I had one scientific translation course, so I would deal with adults, and they all spoke English. And my job was to teach them chemistry in English, and um, so they better understood the science behind what they were translating. So like nomenclature, but but again. <laughs> very little structure. Um, I also had this one adult class in night, nighttime, like ages like 30 to 70. And I had a weekly class with them and I would put together like a topic and some exercises for the class and then just, just do the thing. Getting paid nothing, pretty much. N- really nothing. Like, I had a host family to live with. They weren't compensated. And I got the equivalent of $10 a month. Like two cups of coffee, a couple a couple beers, maybe one cheap lunch per month. And uh Yeah, it was it was a strange time. It was a strange time living off the generosity of others. And it was particularly hard for me because I really loved my first host family, but because I couldn't understand them, um, I didn't know that my time with them was limited. So I had two or three months with them, and then their son, their their eldest son, was coming home, and that's the room I was staying in. So I had to move. So I went in with this other family, and they were completely generous. They was it was like a really nice house, but they, I couldn't leave. They had like a high fence and it was like locked and you needed a key to get out of this high fence. And I couldn't leave without permission. I I felt like a prisoner. And, uh, and I went through a really tough time because I had a girlfriend going to Argentina, which was really silly. I should have broken it off beforehand, but we tried it anyway. And spending six months away from each other we'd only been together for six months at that point you could see how things could crumble and they did and uh going that was like my first girlfriend my first real breakup and so i went through it and the negative energy i must have felt like around them i'm sure it had an impact and the next thing i knew they were asking they were telling i think they just told me hey you're going to another place okay so then I went to a third house, and uh, that family was was great. They spoke the best English. I was a mom and a couple daughters. 
And I only stayed there for maybe a week or two. And then I'm like, you know what? I I don't want to do this anymore. I want to, I don't want to be in Marta Plata anymore, even though it's a beautiful place. Marta Plata is a complete dichotomy of existence. It's a summer destination for Buenos Aires. So people would come down during the summer and there was hundreds of thousands of people there. And then the winter came and it would, there'd be a fraction of the, it'd like be a ghost town. And I was there in the winter primarily. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to move. I met some, I met a couple, two, maybe two or three people, one, one person that I really connected with. And, uh, that was a harder goodbye, but it, it was okay. We, we've stayed in touch here and there, but but not even it was the very first time I tried LSD and it was a super profound experience for me because we did the LSD thing and we, I was so nervous and we like sat around a table like her, her sister and her cousin. And we were giggling so much. They were showing me funny videos. They were making me say phrases and, and then we went up walking down towards the boardwalk on the ocean and playing like leapfrog and giggling like little kids. And I remember thinking like, I feel so sober on LSD. I feel like more sober than sober. But because I had taken the LSD, it was, it was simply an excuse to liberate myself, to be more goofy, to be more childlike. It was like, I didn't feel like it didn't make me more goofy, like that goofiness and that silliness and uh, and play was always there, but for some reason taking it, it almost felt like an excuse to liberate myself, to be fun. So that was the first kind of lesson. It's like, maybe I can do this without the LSD because it feels like, like it feels like hyper sober living with the release of fear. And then they end up taking me to a dance club and I learned how to dance that night on LSD. I learned how to surrender, like to really close my eyes and just be moved by the music. I felt one with the music. No separation between song, song switches. I wish I knew some musical DJ terminology, like whatever, like different sound variations in my body. They were all together. And we, I think I danced by myself for like four or five hours is the first time I, I really like just gave myself to myself to dance. And I was able to actually bring that home with me. Um, and it's been different ever since. And I, I'm th- like thankful for that LSD experience. I'm thankful for that friend I'd met. Um, even though we, we haven't been able to see each other since that experience and them uh, was, was truly special. I had, a, I had a really positive experience. But it was time to move on. And so I, I went and I looked for places to to stay on workaway.org, I think, where you can work for farms, you can work for hotels, uh, hostels, you can be babysitters. There's all sorts of jobs where people exchange room and board. And I found this one. I knew I wanted to go to Cordoba, Capital, so the city Cordoba in the state Cordoba. And I went there and worked at a hostel for... Um, for a couple months 
And somewhere in between going to Cordoba, leaving Mar del Plata and going to Cordoba, I decided I was going to go to Peru. And flash fo- flashback two years before that, my friend told me he heard of this thing called ayahuasca. And it sounded wacky. I had never done anything like that before. I'd only drank and uh, smoked cannabis and did Adderall. And um, so ayahuasca seemed scary and intense and, and risky and exciting. And it, made, it piqued my curiosity, but that's kind of how it, it ended. While I was working a lab before I went to Argentina, I, w- I worked with a particular um, graduate student. And they had left for the summer and came back one year. And they looked completely different to me. And I'm like, dude, what? You look like your eye- there's life behind your eyes. You're communicating in a way I'd never heard before. And it, it was en- enlivening. I'm like, what changed? He's like, I went to Peru and did an ayahuasca retreat. And um, it was a beautiful experience. And he told me the name of the retreat. And I was like, okay. And I made a mental note. So when I was in Argentina and I was kind of, you know, kind of on this like spiritual awakening through the books I was reading, the first person I lived with was a yoga instructor. So I was diving deep into yoga and meditation, getting into certain lectures um, about metaphysics and, you know, the name of the retreat center came to mind. And so I sent them an email. This is 2013. Didn't have much money at that point. I'm like, would I be able to work for the retreat center um, in exchange to live and stay there and and participate in ceremonies? And they got back to me, yeah, um, you know, come come in July and stay as long as you want. Okay. So going to Cordoba, I knew that the next destination was going to be Iquitos, Peru. And I had two months in Cordoba to work at this hostel and to have a little bit more fun and prepare myself. So I ended up doing this and I I was very rigid about this first ayahuasca experience. There's dietas that people encourage you to cut out all salts, cut out certain meats and eat very simply. And so I would, <laughs> there was like five days a week, I would only eat vegetable broth, completely clean myself out. And then the other days I would eat vegetables with eggs two times a day. And I did this for months in anticipation to go to Peru working at the hostel, hostel. but it also helped me save money because I had saved money before I went to South America working as a bartender and I, I, I saved a bunch of money, but getting paid nothing to live down there, um, I was spending too on flights, on travel when I could, um, et cetera. And working in the hostel in Cordoba, I remember it was the first time I was around English speakers again. Because there's, if you've never been to a hostel, you'll be in a kitchen. And there'll be maybe 20 people and 10 countries will be represented. It's like this melting pot of culture. It's really, really cool. And there's usually always people from Israel. Those 
people from Israel travel better than anyone I've ever I've ever seen. I've been to a bunch of places now, and there's always someone from Israel in the kitchen of the hostel um, making tea or something. And they'll usually tell you the best spots to go wherever you're at. And there's Europeans, and there's people from, you know, everywhere. And it's really cool like that to to kind of get exposed to a bunch of different cultures all in one place. So I worked in this hostel doing the fasting thing, doing the meditating thing, experimenting with, you know, sexually. At, at that point, I'm like, am I gay? Like, am I? I? I just, I never had fantasized about a guy, but it's just like, how do I know? I just needed to know. So there's a few times I was out, and this is post learning how to dance, so I'd be dancing the night away to, and when you dance sometimes you create an attraction and there was two times where I attracted some guys and they uh, one time um, I was like sitting down and this guy like came up and he was like basically kissed me and I didn't stop him and I was like it was felt fine in the moment but afterwards I was, I had a friend named Matthias. He also worked at the hostel and he was from France and he didn't speak English and I didn't speak French. So we would speak Spanish to each other. And I remember <laughs> having been kissed, not stopping it uh, by a guy and, and just like going to Matthias like, Oh, I don't know how I feel. I feel so weird. I've never done this before. And, and he's like, what? Okay. I'm like, I kissed, a guy kissed me and he's like, you know, he's super French. Oh, so? He's like, I have guy friends that kiss him sometimes. Of course, he's saying this in Spanish. And he's like, oh, it's no big deal. Like, what are you even doing? I was like, I don't know. I guess it's not a big deal. And uh, yeah, I tried it out. It never went really further than some some kissing makeout sessions, but uh, it was it was a trial run in Cordoba, just to make sure. And yeah, so th- that was kind of the hostile living. I mean, I lived in a room with eight bunk beds, all full of people that were also volunteering, and that's just kind of how I lived drinking only broth, losing tons of weight, being super clean. And then I went to Peru and I was so lucky. I had a my friend, Matt, he came down and visited me and we, we planned like a trip from Lima to Cusco to see Machu Picchu. And we stopped at a place called Ica in the way, which is like an oasis in the desert, literally an oasis, like a single spring of lake in the middle of this vast desert and we did like dune sandboarding and that was just like a a, such a great trip and having not seen a friend or a familiar face for over a year at that point like i was just high the whole time on his presence giggling and just the funniest stories um and machu picchu was so cool i mean it's not even overrated 
we did the thing where you um we booked a super last minute so we basically got dropped off as close as we could had like a eight mile hike um to a town at the base of the mountain of Machu Picchu spent the night there and then we hiked all day Machu Picchu and beautiful place there's like alpacas up there and uh it's as amazing as that you see the pictures we had we hiked all day like i said and then i had the best sleep of my life that night i feel like i, I slept for the first time after going to machu picchu but it's probably all like the exhaustion of uh of hiking and and that mountain air and it's just such a cool it's such a good place i, I really hope Many of you get to see it or witness it. Um, it's worthwhile. And so I do all this fasting. I do, I'm doing all the fasting in Cordoba, making myself clean, go to Peru. Uh, Matt comes to visit. So, you know, I know I'm going to Iquitos next for this ayahuasca retreat, work exchange. But so I'm kind of being gentle, but we're partying a little bit, like, it's kind of in our history. Like we, we just, we, we drink and, and do drugs and, and, uh, take risks and make jokes and be silly. And the last night before going, before going our separate ways, like I was going to go to Iquitos and he was going to head back to mainland United States. And, um, we're just like walking down the street. We get offered some street cocaine and we take it. We buy some, like just a small amount, split a little bit. feels kind of weird. Wouldn't recommend that at all. Um, and it was a pretty decent night. And the only reason I bring that up is because we go our separate ways and all this like cleaning myself out, preparing myself for the ayahuasca journey. I'm on the plane going to Iquitos and I get ill, violently, violently ill on the plane. Shakes. I vomit multiple times on the plane. Just feeling so, so bad. And I land in Iquitos and the person that's supposed to be there, it doesn't pick me up. I'm like shaking and almost dying. I go and sit in the bathroom and like, I'm like, I, do I go home? I'm in the middle of nowhere. Iquitos is the largest city that there's no roads leading to. You can only get there for via Amazon riverboat or airplane, or at least at the time, that's how it was. And I'm, I'm questioning everything. Of course, like, what am I, what am I doing? I feel so bad. I might, I feel like I'm dying. And I come out of the bathroom and I see a little sign that has my name on it. And I'm like, okay, I guess he keep going. And I get on the back of this little like motorized bike that has a like a, a little carriage on it, almost like they have in Thailand, the little tuk-tuks. And we start driving like 45 minutes into the into the Amazon rainforest. Just deep into the in the Amazon rainforest. Like not on roads, like Ace Ventura, and we we pull up to this little spot, this little slice of paradise cut out in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, the hummingbird retreat. And uh, I tell them I'm not feeling well. They show me my my hut, and I just lay there 
for a couple nights or for a day, a night, a couple days. And, uh, they brought me some tea. They were very nice, very accommodating. And, you know, they start showing me the duties I had to do. I have to prepare the food, help bring it out for the guests, um, clean the showers, clean the maloka, which the maloka was the ceremonial hut. It's an octagon shaped room with vaulted ceilings. And the, you know, the shaman would sit opposite the door. Um, so I would set it up, set up everyone with a little bucket. Um, I'd set them up with mats and the Peruvian ceremony, which I didn't know there was even a distinct, like distinguished between Peruvian ceremonies and et cetera, but it's based, it's in the dark. Um, you can lay down and relax. Uh, they give you one or two glasses upon request. Um, and the shaman we had, I, we had was very old, maybe 80 plus Dombaningo, Dombaningo, And, um, so the first night of ceremony, I'm preparing myself so nervous, so nervous. And I ask for a small amount, maybe a three quarters size glass. And I'm just like sitting there meditating, waiting for the impact. Like it was a beautiful experience. My first experience was, was beautiful. Um, it completely opened my mind and heart and how I describe it as corny as it sounds was like, it's the first time I felt seen by God, whatever that is. Maybe that's the first time I saw myself, um, but I felt seen. Um, it made me just repeat thank you, thank you over and over again in my head. Like lesson was gratitude. Beautiful, beautiful experience. And um, and that was probably the easiest ceremony I had whilst there because over the, over now the course of 35, 40 days, I end up doing nine more ceremonies and one San Pedro ceremony. So ayahuasca is a brew. It's a tea. Um, you do it. We drink at night. San Pedro is a cactus and they give it to you in the form of a powder that doesn't dissolve in water, but you put it in water just to chug it down. And it's like drinking sand. It's very hard to get down, but you can do that in the middle of the day. So it's a solar energy. It's a solar medicine. Ayahuasca is more of a lunar medicine. There's so much to unpack. There's so much, you know, people make things very particular and they write and they speculate and they tell stories and um, there's history and lineage to consider. Um. But, you know, the remainder of the ceremonies weren't so, it was challenging, really challenging. Don Beningo, because he was more, he was older, he would only play one instrument. Very simple. It was like a, like leaves pressed together. And he would sing maybe three songs a night. Like in a, a six to eight hour ceremony. He would sing three songs a night and the rest would be the forest, the Amazon rainforest, the sounds of it just completely enveloping your, the soundscape. It's 
I mean, one of the more pleasant stories that I have is I do remember laying back one time and like tuning my arms and my body almost like antenna. And I found like the frequency that bugs communicated on. <laughs> and, um, and even though like they were different sounds, it's like they all communicate on the same um, wavelength. Like this radio, it's like radio has different tunings, but they all are on the radio, whatever that means. So I, I, I kind of found this like master fr like frequency in my mind. And I just like deeply connected to the sound of the jungle via the insects. That was more of like a, a pleasant one. Um, just a few highlights. I think one ceremony I was called outside in my head and I get outside and I, and <laughs> I was like, take your clothes off. I ended up taking my clothes off. Every, every layer of taking clothes off was like shedding a layer of fear. So I realized like a lot of clothing is kind of bound to hiding or covering and like Adam and Eve first covered the genitals with when they first became aware of their, their own shame. Um, and as soon as I got naked, it started raining and like I started dancing and I started to understand how facing different directions, facing the different directions had different feelings. And like, it would make sense for me to go forward, but also acknowledge what's behind me. And to also acknowledge, like, in, in a way, it was me learning about the four directions and learning about my center and the directions. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. I just knew that it felt right to acknowledge each each side and not to just focus on, on one direction. And I had, you know, it's just, in nine ceremonies, it's very hard to capture. I had really dark ones, really difficult, you know, faced with like very difficult purges and um and one ceremony i was sitting up and i we were in the jungle like i said and i felt something crawl on my arm and i was in that place where i'm like of just just ac radical acceptance and so i was like be a stone this will pass this will pass crawls up my arm ends up crawling and sitting on my neck. It was a spider. And I just sat there trying to remain calm, remaining calm, waiting for it to pass, waiting for it to pass. F afraid as heck. And eventually it left. Now the very next ceremony, I was sitting and uh, I felt something crawl on my arm and I'm like, not today. No chance, no chance in, in heck. Because, <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to do the whole thing again. Maybe I should have. I, I think about that day a lot, that particular ceremony, because I did end up getting sick. My cancer was in my throat. Not to blame spiders or anything. I love Spider-Man. Uh, but the spiders in the jungle are for real, dude. For real. When I, when I arrived at feeling sick flashback to that i remember i was sitting in this tuk-tuk and i had a little, one little i consolidated everything down to a backpack and, and sent out the rest home i got i pull up my backpack and there's just a spot 
just a spider right under my backpack. And I was like, Ooh, and the driver, he like took off his flip flop and just whacked it. It scattered away. I was like, okay, here we are in the heckin' jungle. It was such a jungle. And there was nothing to do there besides my work duties, like no TV, no electronics. There were a few books. I think I read Lord of the Rings there. Um, the four agreements I read there and there was this pond. I would go to the pond every day and uh, there's this Dutch guy that was there for some of the time. And he's like, you know, that he would rub mud on himself. He'd be like, they would pay hundreds of dollars an ounce for this in New York. So I would go there and take the mud and cake it on my body, wait for it to dry and then dip myself in the pond and, and wash it all off. And that was like my, my ritual, my daily ritual. And there was only one CD that the retreat center played. And it was, it was a CD. It was the first CD I downloaded off of LimeWire. And it was like my first connection with like an album for whatever it's worth. It's just crazy. And it was Jack Johnson's in between dreams. And I felt so weird that that was the one CD in this, in this jungle in the middle of nowhere. And it was the first CD that I had connected deeply with music. And really, ayahuasca was the start of me connecting with music in a way I didn't know. I guess the LSD thing and dancing. But ayahuasca has been my journey with music and understanding my divinity and the divinity of the world through the lens of music. So it's not too shocking. It's just uh, fun, you know, and weird. What else happened in ceremony? I mean, there were some really hard ones. Um, I really struggled with this one person. Uh, I did eight days of silence and a, and a diet that I only ate one cup of oatmeal a day. And then I was given bobinsana, which is a plant, a, a flower of the jungle, as my um, plant to connect with. It's called the plant dieta, where you start to understand them. And... Um, in this place of silence, like I had this one guy working with me and he would bully me. I mean, that's what it felt like. I'm sure he is a set. He was going through a lot of shit because by the end of it, he had come and apologized to me three multiple times. One time with tears in his eyes saying how sorry he was for treating me poorly, but then he would treat me the same way the next day. And the only thing I took from it was, oh, this is at the time, I'm like, this is how mean I am to my dad sometimes when he doesn't deserve it. And there was never really any reconciliation between me and that one guy. I think about him sometimes too, because it really affected me. Like I was straight up doing my best. I was so, I was on such little food that all I was really doing was praying and doing my work. And, um, and he just couldn't like me. He just, I really bothered him, my existence. And, uh, yeah, maybe, I think he did teach me a lot about how to be more kind to my dad, ironically. And uh, what else? There's just some really good people I met there. I think about them often. I think about this experience in the jungle quite a bit. And, um,
Yeah, I do remember the last ceremony was right after my diet, after eight days of fasting, eight days of silence, I drank ayahuasca and it was like, it was that same LSD thing where I didn't feel under or induced. I felt hyper sober, like fully present. Like there was soup, there was life behind my eyes. Um, it was turned on. And the, the ceremony that night was more about being in like this reality and how to give back to this reality. Um, which I'm still learning, of course, but it was like kind of a precipice of that. And I was visited by some some beings that I don't understand. I was visited by this like stone statue, like Greek statue archer who had a big archer's helmet that interacted with me. I was this huge presence that I couldn't identify. I was kind of visited by what seemed to be like Lucifer and demons and... uh Oh, just so full on. It's so impossible to to convey. I, I think one night I remember having a ceremony in my mind within the ceremony where I buried, physically buried the words good and bad as some sort of symbol of non-judgment. Um, and yeah, so much to unpack and I don't think I can, I can go any further. Maybe I'll break this up into multiple I'll uh, continue on I'm sure as as the memories unfold and then after that after my after the ceremony I decided kinda I wanted to go from Peru up through Central America up through Mexico and make my way home but at this point my family was really really needing me like they were so I couldn't communicate with them in the jungle. They had no idea what I was doing in there. They had no idea what ayahuasca was, and they were so scared. And that's that's something I had to deal with upon returning because they they had a, quite a bit of resentment for me having done this. And I remember coming home, and I surprised my mom. Um, and at that point, I was 150 pounds because of all the diet dieting, and. Uh, I remember she just started crying because of how thin I was. My grandma still to this day blames Argentinian, blames South American people for not feeding me. And I can't talk her out of it. She's a grandma. She was so offended that how thin I was when I came back that she resents South America as an entirety because they didn't feed me. It's Italian grandma. It's Italian grandmother. Um... But it was my choice not to eat mostly. Maybe I would have eaten in hindsight. And now when I prepare for certain ceremonies, when I'm able to do them few and far between um, in safe and legal places, um, I'm not as rigid on myself. I think dieting is is a form of control that doesn't necessarily need to exist. I mean, a lot of what I learn is how to surrender and... Uh, and through that surrender, I actually find better, healthier habits anyway. So the rigidity, maybe it served me back then, but I'm not nearly as rigid now when I approach different ceremonies. I kind of come as I am, and I feel like showing up as I really am and not just giving a week to being perfect um, actually is what serves me now when I approach ceremony. And uh, when I came back, Six months later, I uh, had a mental breakdown, ended up in the hospital 
for suicide. And if you'd like to hear this story, I'll be sharing it on Patreon and OnlyFans. But this has been, this is the end of my uh, free YouTube co uh, content. And I do hope you consider going over there and hearing the remainder of the story uh, at Patreon and OnlyFans. That was a, I really uh, enjoyed this one as well. I enjoyed sharing my story. I hope there's something that you guys could extract from it. And um, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been The Good Wind. Whew.